Okay, uh, welcome everyone to today's lecture. Uh, my name is Dr. Okur, and I'm a faculty member in the department and the Center of Middle Eastern Studies. And beha on behalf of the UT Center for Middle Eastern Studies, um, I'd like to welcome you to the final lecture in what has been an interdisciplinary um, Turkish Ottoman series uh, this year. And of course, I want to thank our long list of co-sponsors. Bear with me, but there have been a lot of departments and programs involved in making this lecture series happen this year, so I need to recognize them. Uh, so thank you to the departments of government, history, uh, religious studies, Slavic and Eurasian studies, radio, television, and film, uh, the Center for European Studies, the Rapoport Center for Human Rights and Justice, the Program in Comparative Literature, and the Dialogue Institute of the Southwest. Okay. <laughs> Um, and even though uh, it's the end of our lecture series and I shouldn't be making any more announcements, I actually would really like to plug one more event um, that has to do with Turkey and is coming up in the next couple of weeks in case any of you are interested. Um, there will be a workshop um, sponsored by the Departments of Middle Eastern Studies and Religious Studies called uh, Place, Memory, Place Memory, Place Politics cultural perspectives on the local and locality. And a very interesting historian will be coming from the University of South Carolina. Her name is Amy Mills. Those of you who work in Turkish studies might have heard of her. Um, she has been um, working on the Kuzumjuk neighborhood on the Asian side of um, Istanbul for a long time now. And she will be giving a talk um, during that workshop which is on Friday, April 11th, and Saturday, April 12th. Her talk is called The Historical Production of Place Identities uh, in Istanbul, and she'll be uh, sharing her work on the Kuzumjuk neighborhood. Um, and it's not yet set, uh, but if you're interested in that, then just keep an eye on the events page of the Middle Eastern Studies website, and it should be announced soon exactly when her talk is within that two-day two period. Uh, okay, so today I'd like to welcome Dr. Hilal Alvar. Um, she is a research professor of global, global studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara, and she's held this appointment since 2002. She's also co-director of the Project on Global Climate Change, Human Security, and Democracy, um, which is housed at the same university. Um, she's a lawyer at the same time. She has a law degree and a PhD from the University of Ankara Law School, uh, and that's where she began her teaching career in Turkey. Um, during this, the early, early period of her career, uh, she was also appointed by the Turkish government as the founding legal advisor of the Ministry of Environment, hence developed all of her uh, interest in environmental law and environmental studies. Later, she became the General Director of Women's Studies in the Office of the Prime Minister. Uh, in 1994, she was appointed to the UNEP Chair, the UNEP Chair in Environmental Diplomacy by the United Nations Environmental Program and uh, taught at the Mediterranean Academy of Diplomatic Studies in Malta. Uh, since 1996, she's been back and forth in multiple nations, but mainly housed during the year in the United States and has taught at several universities in the US. Um, let's see, she's been a Fulbright Scholar at McGill University and also the Univers University of Michigan Law School. She says, enough. Um, 
And what else? She also earned her Doctor of Juridical Science, a second uh, law degree, a second PhD from UCLA Law School. Um, her publications have focused mainly on inter international environmental law and international human rights law, especially as it pertains to women. And uh, she has two books that I think are you know, worth reading. Um, the first is Peaceful Uses of International Rivers, the case of the Euphrates and Tigris Rivers, published in 2002. And then the talk uh, that you're going to hear today relates more closely to her most recent book, the, the Headscarf Controversy, Secularism and Freedom of Religion. And uh, yeah, thank it's you. Definitely my <laughs> pleasure to welcome here. Thank you very much for this floating presentation and thank you uh, coming to listening to me and thank you for the invitation from various kind of departments. I'm, I feel responsible of the all uh, little bit of every institutional setting in the University of Texas. I hope it's worth it to their <laughs> the, uh, initiative. Uh, I'm going to talk today about the headscarf controversy, mainly in relation to Turkey, and then um, how the headscarf controversy goes uh, uh, went global. Actually, when I wrote this book yesterday, I, I gave another talk. I talked a little bit about it. I never thought that headscarf controversy will be really global. It's something to do with Turkey and never going to go anywhere. It's going to be died down because it's kind of nonsense. But it, unfortunately, it was not like that. I was wrong. And then this headscarf issue became more political than I ever imagined and became a global issue that we now we all know about the world and headscarf women and Muslim women dress became an important uh, social and political event in the world, especially in the West, in Europe, and a little bit of in the uh, United States. Uh, when I was writing my book, I put the, so, so, some kind of conceptual issues relating to the headscarf controversy, or I made the hex, headscarf is a concept, but related to a different kind of uh, concept. The one was the normal one uh, is secularism and freedom of religion, which is uh, human rights. And the other one is a racialization of Islam and Islamophobia phobia in the West, uh, it became also important. And then uh, equally important issue is the gender discrimination. These are all the issues that I try to dealt in the book from the, uh, from the perspective of different countries. And because I'm a lawyer, I looked at the uh, court cases in various countries and uh, basically uh, the countries that, as I said, Turkey is one important one, and then uh, in Europe, uh, France, uh, Germany uh, was an important countries dealing with the uh, headscarf issue. There are other countries, but I had to limit my book. That's why I make it the major 
uh, issues uh, limited to France and Germany and the United States. And then I looked at the European Court of Human Rights because European Court of Human Rights becomes so important in the headscarf case in relation to Turkey, in relation to France and Switzerland and uh, many other countries because these are the uh, regional supranational human rights courts and an important institution in relation to human rights that uh, citizens uh, can go beyond their uh, country's uh, judicial remedy uh, more in, in a regional and more uh, uh, supranational uh, system, which is a very important uh, human rights mechanism. If we start the Turkey, Turkey is a kind of uh, uh, interesting case. Of course, I am part of uh, this culture, that's why I can say more things about Turkey than the other countries. But there is a kind of important historical uh, problematic in Turkey that make the headscarf case so bigger than other places and so earlier than other places. Uh, the, the first controversy between republicanism and sec, uh, republicanism, secularism idea versus so social conservatism and Islam. Uh, when, when you see this kind of uh, two concepts uh, controversial with each other, you would maybe know something about, because you work on the Turkish and Ottoman studies, but I have to make a very short introduction uh, anybody that don't have any kind of background. The Ottoman uh, Turkey, well, let's say Ottoman Empire, was a long-lasting Islamic empire in history. And then uh, after four, four, 400, 500 years later, it dismantled it uh, at the end of the First World, uh, first world uh, one, and then the Republic of Turkey was established in a rather uh, smaller part of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, in this case, uh, the Turkish, uh, Turkish state uh, was born as a republic, Republican of Turkey, which means basically Western ideas or French system was the model. And they were uh, very much uh, preoccupied, the founders were very much preoccupied with modernity and the secularism in order to be a Western rather than a kind of long historical period of the Eastern Islamic Empire. And this uh, come with the series of uh, social and legal reforms, and they left the Islamic law. They start. They took it all the European legal system that includes even family law, which is unusual for any Europe, any Islamic countries in the world. It's also the only example in the world taking the whole European legal system uh, as a 98 percent. A significantly a Muslim population. And secularism was the most important principle to get rid of Islam, Islamic uh, influences over uh, the Ottoman Empire's uh, legacy. Uh, these things did not really work very well, or it did work in somehow, but it didn't work altogether because we, after this 1926, uh, we had a certain kind of controversy in Turkish society. I wouldn't call completely divided country, but there is a controversy among the Turkish people. If you have 
some knowledge you can understand. We, we have kind of polarized society in relation to uh, social conservatism, Islam, republicanism, and uh, secularism. And I looked at this case from the perspective of foundation of the headscarf controversy. If you look at the 1926 Turkey, it's a very different picture than today's Turkey, or for some, it's a different picture than uh, Turkish uh, social life. At that time, during the Ataturk period, and during the westernization project, a series of laws, as I said, uh, changed the p Turkish people's life, making more modern and western. But the one thing that Atatürk didn't touch at all, the women's dress code. That was an important thing because uh, he understood very well the women's uh, dress code and headscarf is part of Turkish culture. And it would be very difficult to get rid of this, despite all kinds of social pressure or the or kind of that kind of model pictures that Ataturk uh, period shows the Turkey but never became a law banning the headscarf for instance he banned the, uh, the fez which is the certain kind of head the Turkish man using but they never made any kind of uh, law uh, making a headscarf ban, but they sort of suggested uh, Western-style dress is good for Turkish women, and the Westernization project also make Turkish women kind of symbol, but not in the legal realm. This is 1926. Now we are jumping to year 2000s. The year 2000s, between 1926 and year 2000, there are lots of political issues happening in Turkey, but I'm not going to details because we have too much, we don't have that much time. But what happened significantly in year 2000, uh, the, the new political structure uh, came with the uh, Justice and Development Party, uh, changed the uh, kind of social realm of Turkey. Representation of Turkey changed uh, dramatically according to some group. And uh, the other group, this was exactly what Turkey was. Finally, we got the uh, normal representation that what we are, depending on to whom you ask this question. You see this picture, uh, the wives of the prime ministers and wife, wife of the president. And basically, they were the subject of the attack. Uh, whatever the uh, political problems about the headscarf, their pictures always in the first uh, forefront and they were complaining about the wife's picture but this is one interesting thing. They never complain about their husband's religiosity. That was a kind of interesting thing. But what I uh, sort of interpret in this, it's a very sexist and the paternalistic idea of the Turkish elite. They can accept the husbands, but they cannot accept the wives as a, uh, with the headscarf. That was a kind of very strong sentiment that I made 
uh, me to write uh, this book, actually. Uh, as you see, uh, th there was always kind of controversy in Turkey, but then this polarization in uh, around 2005 or something, they said, okay, we get used to each other. We can really, we can learn how to live together. As you see, this is an excessive cover, uh, women uh, cover in Turkey. You don't see much about these pictures, but sometimes you do if you go some conservative neighborhoods, you can see women really wear a, a black shador, but never covering the face because the covering the face is not part of the Turkish culture. Uh, all these things kind of like a social structure. Now we go a little bit of uh, what happened from the law perspective uh, in relation to students and the women that who wear headscarf. Uh, I don't know how many of you are experiencing this kind of uh, controversy, but I am. Uh, I was experienced personally in this case. Uh, first, uh, because of my mother, because my mother had a headscarf, and when I was teaching at the University of Ankara Law School in 1980s, there was a very strong period during the post-military period. The headscarf was not completely accept was not acceptable, and. Uh, the government were pushing us to get rid of the students from our classroom if they have a headscarf. That was a very strong uh, feeling on me because how come you are, as a professor, you are responsible to expel your students from the classroom. It was during the uh, military period. And from 1980s to 2012, these things went on and off. That is the interesting thing. That's why I call lawfare, because lawfare means several of laws in these issues in Turkey was changed, uh, manipulated, and uh, kind of played as a political game. Some of the parties use the political power of the religious group. They try to uh, ease the ban. Some other parties wanted to completely get rid of because they were very secular. They want to uh, vote of the secularist group. They had very strong banning, but no one understand what was going on over uh, the girls that they are wearing headscarf. For instance, there are several stories in my book, and because I interviewed several of them, now they are kind of age of 50 right now, and now they are uh, they have daughters. They are going again to university with the same kind of second generation uh, problems that they, they were having until very recently. And they, for instance, many of them was expelled to university four or five times. And then every time amnesty came because political winds changed and they said, okay, you can come back again to university. And they, they went one year and then the uh, politics change, they expelled again, come back again. It was unbelievable kind of period at that time among the university students. I'm not even talking about professional life because there was no professional life. It's impossible. 
it's impossible for them, even one way or another, they finish their school, they can't go any other professional life. But this changed. As you know, law, politics, and culture constantly changing. And change in Turkey, too. In uh, Actually, in now, I am jumping again a little bit. Uh, Supreme Court, Supreme Administrative Court decision in November 2012, which is very new. And uh, headscar use anymore is not a reason for termination of civil servant positions for teacher, which was an important kind of decision uh, by the Su Supreme Administrative Court because there was a teacher went to court uh, because she was expelled from the school. This case took 10 years at the end, um, came up with this decision. But you will say what happened earlier period until uh, 2005, uh, the the justice system, judicial system, was extremely uh, secular. No, whoever goes to a judicial remedy, they never get anything because it was a, a political structure that even party, to, since starting from 2002, AKP was very religious friendly party, but judicial system and military was still very secular. That's why they were not able to give an ease to headscarf people. And maybe you know in 2007, a constitutional court even tried to close the governing party because they tried to change the constitutional rules to, give, uh, to get rid of the headscarf ban. That ended up kind of, uh, again, serious kind of uh, political backlash, which is very much used to in Turkey, but this was very important and unheard. Any kind of political party, governing party, uh, would it be possible uh, closing by the Constitutional Court? That was uh, in last minute with one vote uh, they escaped from this, and they didn't want to touch any more constitutional rules because they were worried about this uh, 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 consequences of the Constitutional Court. But then this government too, gradually they tried to change the judge in the Constitutional Court, in the high courts. Then uh, the new uh, group of uh, judicial uh, judges uh, now is in the Constitutional Court. This made the secularism principles completely changing in 2002, uh, 2012. 2012 is an in interesting uh, decision by the Constitutional Court. They redefined, re-made uh, the secularism, reinterpreted secularism principle in Turkey, and they said we, we don't anymore uh, used a very strict secularism principle. We want the peace-oriented secularism, which means we can't anymore freedom of religion limits uh, just for the secularity, but the freedom of religion should be protected even more stronger than the secularism, which this decision made a completely headscarf ban uh, out even though there is no law neither to ban 
or not to ban uh, the, the headscarf in Turkey. Still, there is no law. But what you say right now, uh, it's nothing is completely out because number one, there is no constitutional rule change. There is no law uh, written uh, for uh, uh, the freedom of headscarf. But what they did, they changed the regulation of the civil servants. Then and then, based on the constitutional court, they ease the uh, headscarf use. But now they made kind of limit the Erdogan, the uh, prime minister, in September. Uh, uh, 2013, he gave kind of human rights package, which was a little bit after uh, Gezi events that he wanted to give certain kind of way of how Turkey is becoming more human rights friendly. In this package, there was the changing of the regulation for the civil servants, but they make the limitation, no judiciary and uh, no military or no police could be uh, part of this uh, freedom, which means uh, judges and lawyers and the um, uh, police cannot use headscarf. But then the lawyers is a little bit complicated because lawyers are not part of the civil servant system. Uh, that's why lawyers push more uh, seriously to be part of the uh, uh, freedom of headscarf because by now the students that one way or another graduated from law school, they were not able to get into the courtroom, but they were using some other lawyers for the courtroom, but they were working kind of backstage of the law firm. This is changing right now, despite the bar associations are extremely uh, secular, and they are very, very, very uncomfortable about it. In conclusion, there is no clear result, according to my understanding, about the uh, headscarf in Turkey. But because the government is religious friendly, they made here and there some changes to make the uh, law school, uh, to make the headscarf uh, ban uh, more manageable for the people. If we come to the Europe, how, how it goes the global section, uh, gl global arena to headscarf. Uh, the Europeans were very much worried about uh, Turks and the Muslims because there are many Muslims and Turks are living in Europe in different countries. They are guest arbiters. They went all the way back to 1960s. Now there are, I think, 15 million Muslims are living in various countries. And the first thing came, of course, women headscarf and burqa and the minare. Minare was a very important kind of uh, problem uh, in different countries. First, it starts uh, Switzerland. It was so ridiculous because there was only four, min uh, four mosques in entire Switzerland, and none of them had a minaret. And they said that we don't, if you look at the picture, always women is part of the Islamophobia. That's a kind of symbol. And uh, this was a basically post-9-11 sentiment in Europe. It's culmination of the security concerns. 
if you look at the leaders of the Europe, they were not better than the um, some kind of implementational administrative person's idea. We can see multiculturalism failed, always the leaders were talking about. Basically, multicultural Europe uh, shifted to itself to the Islamophobic actions here and there, headscarf, burqa, niqab. They are throughout uh, Europe and they Angela Merkel um, and the Sarkozy and Cameron was talking, oh, multiculturalism failed. We can't do anymore. That was a kind of interesting political change in in Europe in post 9-11. Even post 9-11 was not directly uh, happened in Europe, but it had a big impact on that. Uh, when we talk about the Islam in Europe, women issues is always in the forefront because the women in Islam always complicated subject. And this picture shows two things. The one that um, violence against women always uh, associated with Islamic societies, Islamic culture, unlike the statistics uh, are different. Uh, according to statistics, relig religion is not the deal, but the whole world is suffering from the violence against women. But in Europe, the Islam is the first reason violence against women. The second, they were so worried about the converted uh, conversion issue because a lot of uh, European, I'm not sure a lot of European women, maybe 500 or 1,000 European women converted to Islam and they started to wear burqa, and especially in, uh, in uh, Netherlands. This became also a problematic issue because they were trying, oh my God, we should really uh, rescue our women being a Muslim. And uh, that was the kind of a lot of posters, violence against women, and showing this kind of blue eyes, which is the Western women converted to Islam. Uh, and uh, among the uh, uh, face covering, of course, honor killings and the female circumcision become more and more subject that uh, Europeans were uh, dealing with. If you look at the French, I am sure you know a lot about the French issue because the French people uh, made very clear about this and laïcité, culture of laïcité, and the history of colonialism, especially uh, Algerians' presence in um, France, uh, headscar become a symbol of the problem rather than uh, a problem. And the, uh, the French government was the first government dealing with this issue, legislating them. The others did not do it. Even Turkey didn't do it. And the French was the first. And what they did in 2004, you know, there was a, a, a law against ostensible religious symbols uh, in high schools and middle schools, but only public schools. And then... This was a very controversial uh, kind of law, but the French people overwhelmingly supported this. It was interesting from right to left, from communist to leftist, they all were against headscarf and they wanted to support this headscarf ban in uh, high schools. In 2011, they went further even, they said, okay, we're gonna ban right now to burqa in the public places. Public places are extremely 
questionable, which means you cannot go to supermarket, you cannot not go to movie, you cannot take the public transportation because if you have a burqa, this is a completely against the equality principle. They did it, nothing happened. Still, the law is going on. And moreover, what they did, they said, okay, we're going to give you a monetary fine, plus we send you citizenship school, which means they're going to show them how to be French. That is kind of so unacceptable policy to get rid of burqa. But anyway, there are only 2,000 burqa users in France. I think one or two of them find right now the law that was born dead in any way. Uh, but it, this makes the uh, French people uh, to think about because the court decision started to come in March 2013. There was a private nursery school teacher won the case in High Court of France because High Court of France thought that the, using a, a headscarf is good for public health because more clean then this made the French politician a little nervous. They said, okay, we should establish a committee. And they established a committee. How they get rid of the university students out when they use the religious symbols, not only headscarf, because you must know a little bit if the law is neutral for every religion, it's it's difficult to be to go uh, kind of to be uh, dismantled by the higher court or uh, by the European Court of Human Rights because you are equally against all kind of religious symbols. That's why they were using all. But obviously, this was about headscarf. The decision didn't come yet. We don't know what they're gonna do uh, banning headscarf in universities. This will be a very important decision and interesting. If we go to uh, German. Germany is also very, a kind of a not very well known uh, case uh, among the foreigners because we all know French fear, but we don't know anything about Germany too much. Uh, Germany is much more law obedient country, and they have the constitutional court decision about the Ludin case. She is an Afghani woman. I think she is converted. I'm not sure about it, uh, but the, uh, she was a, uh, I think, school teacher. Maybe she was not even teacher. She was a practice, uh, practitioner or intern teacher, and they fired her from her school, and she went to court. And at the end, the uh, case went to the uh, German Constitutional Court. German Constitutional Court made an interesting decision. They said, "Okay, well." We, you cannot really fire women because there's a, a headscarf because German constitution, which, which they call basic law, very strongly in favor of freedom of religion. But court made a very interesting remark. They said, okay, we cannot really stop the headscarf use, but the lenders, lenders means not the federal level, but the state level. The Germany has this federal system. 
state legislators make a law and you can ban. And then suddenly after this uh, court decision, uh, seven lenders followed the court's direction. They went, uh, they, they made it a headscarf ban and many, many women lost their jobs and they moved from one lender to another. The, they didn't uh, have this. Uh, it was very also destructive and Human Rights Watch have a very good decision, uh, very good report on that if you are interested in. Uh, moreover, the court did one more thing, was very strange. They made the distinction between Oriental values versus Occidental Christianity. They said, okay, uh, the headscarf is not our culture, but in our culture we have this uh, nuns, that nuns habit is part of our life, then we can't really ban the Occidental version of the Christianity. This was completely against the uh, uh, principles of equality, but they did it. If you look at the European Court of Human Rights, this is the, as I said before, European Court of Human Rights is a kind of a umbrella court beyond the state system. If you don't get your remedy in state, you can go and apply to European Court of Human Rights if the country, of course, signed the European Court of uh, Human Rights Convention. Article 9 is about freedom of religion. In relation to this, we, we have several cases, but the more importantly, uh, Dahlap versus Switzerland, Leila Shahin versus Turkey, and then two, three cases in 2010 against France, and another case against France. Without going to too detailed, uh, many of the cases, even different kind of uh, situation. For instance, Dahlap was a kindergarten teacher. She lost her job after, uh, until September 11, she didn't have any problem. Right after September 11, principal came to her class, you can't teach anymore with your headscarf. This was a direct impact of the 9-11 to a headscarf woman. And she went to court, and then um, European Court of Human Rights said at the end, well, it's okay because it's uh, against the, what they said very interestingly because court has certain kind of rules to limit the freedom of religion because freedom of religion, like any other religions, they have certain kind of limitations. In Article 9, one paragraph gives you freedom of religion. Article 9, paragraph 2 takes away your freedom of religion with, in relation to limitation. The limitation is if your right is interferes others' life, if, if the if you use this proselytizing, which means kind of influencing others, and if this freedom of religion right limited by any law, then you cannot use freely. Based on this uh, exceptional case, in Dahlab case, they said, well, this woman is proselytizing their children, which these children were around five, uh, they can see this woman and they will be influenced by her and they're going to be Muslim. That was very interesting. 
Anyway, it was an important case. Then Leyla Shahin case came. It's about Turkey. It's a, she's a medical school student. And she was expelled from her uh, school. And then she exhausted all the legal remedies in Turkey. She went to the European Court of Human Rights. And she lost. Very normal she lost because before 10 cases was lost anyway. But they went to the Grand Chamber, uh, Grand Chamber, which is the highest level of the European Court of Human Rights. It became more visible and she lost there too. There was the reasons, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, I'm going to show you right now what are the uh, reasons that court made a decision. I'm not going to go detail margin of appreciation. <coughs> it's a legal concept. Margin of appreciation means we as a court in Europe, we don't know what is happening in your country, but we're going to make a decision based on your country's laws and principles. They sort of uh, send the ball to Turkey because it was an easy thing to do that because they are not doing all the time against Turkey cases. But in Hetzkar cases, they always do like that. And then second idea, they, they didn't stop in this. They said image of, of Turkey and Islam is very important. Turkish secularism were major principles. It limits the freedom of religion. And democracy in danger in Turkey, this is the court decision. And what they say, the fundamentalism is so problematic in Turkey, that's why Hetzkar use should be uh, limited or should be banned. And then uh, what they say at the end, it was very interesting. They said uh, peer pressure is so important Students who don't wear headscarf, they would be uncomfortable if there's a headscarf students in the classroom. That's why you can't be. That is amazing legal principle never done before. They did it. And uh, during this period, actually, it was 2004, 2005, it was important things change in Turkey because the Turkish government was not anymore uh, very uh, secular because 19, this, she started this case in 1998, but it became all the way to 2005 and politics change in Turkey and the new government was extremely upset about it, but uh, that nothing happened. That, influence of this case was very important among the other European countries. The, uh, also, they referred even the French law in this case, promoting the French law, which is a kind of ridiculous law. But they said, OK, this is what Europe is about. But this is the case in Turkey. They didn't make even distinct, distinction between European headscarriers and the Turkish headscarves, which is Turkey, 98% of Muslims, and more than 60% of women wear headscarves. And when we come, what uh, European Court of Human Rights is not really objective, 
we had to wait a little bit more. This case was 2005, Leila Shahin case. When we come to 2011, there was another case in the European Court of Human Rights. This time, the case came from Europe, uh, Italy, in 2011. <coughs> the two boys, that uh, their mother was atheist and Finnish and living in Italy in, in Terme, it's a small town in northern Italy. And every uh, classes in the Italy, they have a cross. And the mother went to court. She said, I don't want my children sitting in the uh, room with the cross. Uh, I, I have a, f a freedom from religion. I don't want this. And she lost the case. She went to European Court of Human Rights. The first decision, European Court of Human Rights, just like in the uh, Leila Shahin case, court made exactly the same argument. They said, okay, this is true. It's, it's against uh, freedom of religion. And they sent back to margin of appreciation, which means we have to look at the Italian law. And they refer the, uh, no, sorry. They didn't go to margin of appreciation. They said, she is right. She, the it, Italian government lost against her. But there was a huge outcry in Europe, especially among the very strong religious countries like uh, Poland, uh, Malta, Ireland, uh, and Vatican, of course, and Italian government. They came together and they said, we have to go to the Grand Chamber. This is outrageous. You cannot really change our culture. The court went to the Grand Chamber. Yeah. The, the, the court changed the decision. They said, okay, this is a cultural uh, symbol, not a religious symbol. Italians are right, and they accept it. You can see from there the social pressure is extremely important over the court decisions. That makes you, of course, the Christian Europe and the uh, issues in about Turkey and Hescar obviously will not be objectively evaluated. If we come to the United States, it's a very different story in the United States. First of all, uh, the Muslim presence in the US is different than Europe because it's sort of culmination between race issue and the immigration issue. We have African-American Muslims and uh, Muslims of immigrants. African-American Muslims are important presence, and, but interestingly enough, there is a certain kind of mosaic in the United States. They don't mingle with each other. African-Americans have their own thing, and the old immigrants have their own thing. South Asians and Middle Easterners, Afghanis and Pakistanis and Turks, they, they don't generally make a common decisions about their religiosity, about their rules, about their political understanding. That's why this kind of identity is very difficult in the United States. And also, the general identity politics in the US still more multicultural. Because it's more, more multicultural, acceptance is better than the Europe. 
and also legal system works differently in, in the United States. In the United States, very strong First Amendment it makes the freedom of uh, expression and freedom of religion more uh, kind of defendable. And at the same time, they have a, this accommodationist model, which means they try to accommodate if they can't really make, uh, rather than going uh, against the principles, they are much more flexible and they look at the cases one by one. They don't have this kind of big rule that implements to everyone else. This is a good way of uh, dealing with issue. However, United States also after 9-11, they were not as good as used to be. And multiculturalism replaced with Islamophobia in certain groups, not every group, but some of the groups. They had this uh, fear of Sharia law uh, kind of uh, campaign that all over the United States. And they had this major Manhattan Islamic Center project controversy in 2011. They didn't want to uh, build an is, uh, Muslim, uh, Islamic Center because it was too close to Twin Towers. Uh, and they had kind of a problem on that. It should be uh, very disrespectful to 9-11. Uh, <coughs> kind of people, they lost their life in 9-11. Then if you remember, every 9-11 anniversary, there was some uh, priest in uh, Florida, he made the decision, this every 9-11 is a crown burning day. That creates a huge clash. Actually, one time when he started to uh, burn this crown in Kandahar, uh, 25 people were killed. Uh, they attacked the United Nations to kill the Westerners. It was amazing because it's a kind of, we are living in a, a world that uh, internet is making all the information very available. And this irresponsible case and other irresponsible persons kind of outrage. It was unbelievable how you can, you have to control such kind of extremes in uh, this kind of uh, way. But having said that, in legal front, Supreme Court did not make a decision yet. Still, uh, freedom of uh, headscarf is very major. Freedom of religion or any kind of symbols are very important in the United States didn't touch uh, uh, until now. But the Islamophobia is becoming more and more important and all the uh, mainstream newspapers like or journals, Time magazine, Newsweek magazine, they are after one another, especially after Ob during the Obama uh, presidential campaign, uh, being Obama's father is Kenyan, which he went to school in Indonesia, make the all Americans worried about
about Islam. Then Islamophobia became a little bit mainstream. Then Arab uh, Spring came. When the Arab Spring came, instead of showing this Arab Spring kind of more uh, uprising against the uh, leaders that they are not democratic, they were showing these pictures kind of, if you see these pictures in the news, you would think this kind of people cannot be really democratic. That's a kind of image that they try to use how to make uh, Islamic face a problematic. That was a media. And then also popular media use a people that uh, very anti-Muslim, uh, formula or very anti-Islam cases. For instance, Ayan Hirshi Ali is an excellent example for this. She was keep writing and talking about how Islam is horrible. Islam has maybe some horrible cases and maybe she had some horrible problems in her, in her life, but when you make such a kind of platform for this person, you have to find another person to sort of compromise. Didn't way, didn't go that way. This is an interesting picture. I don't know how many of you see. The Foreign Policy Magazine published this in 2012, April, because there was an election at that time, and everybody was talking about the women's position uh, between uh, Republicans and Democrats. How are we going to make the freedom of women because Republicans don't care about it? And the Foreign Policy magazine made it, okay, we have to do the special issue on sex. But in, instead of making what's happening in the United States, they put only Iran, Egypt, China, India, and Basically, uh, Eastern countries, how terrible they are, and they make terrible things uh, uh, their own women. And the picture also, not only cover, they had a big poster when you buy the magazine, you can put in your room. It's kind of like more sexy than, sexier than ever that showing a woman in black, which shows a little bit African-American sentiment, the sex, and the covering. It's all together the image of Islam or Muslim women uh, became a kind of like more sex object and the men are horrible. Well, there are lots of cases. Yes, men are horrible. But this is not the only thing we can deal in, in the foreign policy. And if you look at the most recent uh, report of CARE, I'm sure you know about this CARE. This is an organization they deal with the kind of civil rights issues in relation to Muslims. And uh, they talk about uh, uh, legislating the fear, which means uh, Islamophobia and its impact the United States, even the September 2013, they profiled and several individuals, websites, organizations uh, that they are doing anti-Islamic and the Islamophobic uh, publications or uh, campaigns to show what is going on recently. If we go to UK, recently, last semester I was in UK, there was also a very big pro problem in UK too. And uh, there was a new report uh, 
about the Muslim woman. And that was interesting, the, how Muslim women more likely to suffer Islamophobia as opposed to men, uh, what they call maybe we are hated, the experience and impact of anti-Muslim hate on British Muslim women is extremely higher. And what they say, Islamophobic crimes and incidents found 58%, all verified incidents were against women, and in 80% of those cases, the woman was wearing a hijab, niqab, or other clothing associated with Islam. This shows that they really put together hatred of Islam or fear of Islam, no matter what you call, and security issues all the women face. Whatever the women wear, whatever women goes, and whatever they do, they take the responsibility of the whole issue. I should stop writing here, then we can talk a little bit more if you have any question. Thank you.